Good afternoon. It's the second Tuesday of the month, and it's 4 p.m. That's the ETA for Boat Talk, the temporarily zoom-in boating show on WERU-FM Blue Hill at 89.9 on the radio dial and at WERU.org on other electronic devices. I'm Alan Sprague, and I'll be joined by the other Rusty Anchors, John Johansson and Mike Joyce, very shortly. This edition of Boat Talk is going to take us all over the world with two special guests. But first, a small report on the Newport Boat Show, New England's largest in-water boating show. John Johansson had the Main Built Boats booth there, and this is his short report. It was kind of interesting because you you didn't know what to expect. Uh, you know, I kind of figured it may be half of what we normally see. Well, if you thought there was a pandemic going on, they didn't know it. Huh. I mean, it was unbelievable from start to finish the number of people that were there. And uh, I didn't see very much many people that were really interested in building a boat the first two days. But the second two days, I probably fielded between seven and eight really high potential people that were looking or doing their homework about buying a new boat. So that was that was good. I mean, it was worth it for us. I mean, we had sold a job for somebody uh, at Kittery Point Yacht Yard uh, at the main boat builder show. So, you know, it's good to know that you know, that the information that you hand out sometimes does actually get used. Back in Maine, John resumed his usual routine of checking on Maine boatyards. I went into about five boat shops within the last month. One of them was Friendship Boat. That's run by Randy Young, who's one of the sons of the Young Brothers who started the Young Brothers in Korea. And he runs Friendship Boat for Keith Simmons in Friendship. And they've got a 42 Young Brothers in there. And she's in for basic maintenance, which was interesting because they said it hadn't been out of the water for three or four years. Well, I thought you should probably bring it out a little more often than that. She's in there being totally uh, refurbished, you know, made to look like, uh, like new. And then he's also got a brand new boat that he's building. It's a 36 Calvin Beale. It's going to go to Massachusetts as a sport fish boat. Pretty simple. She's going to be powered with a 650 Scania and uh, split wheelhouse, but only down forward is just a V berth and a cabinet. So, you know, it's not really, you know, too complicated. She's going to Martha's Vineyard. That's about all he's got. Uh, Albert Hutchinson. Uh, he runs Hutchinson Composites in Cushing, and he's the home of the uh, Muscle Ridge boats. And he's right now doing a 42-footer that's going down to Bruce Farron's shop to be finished off for a cruiser. And then they've got a Coast Guard boat that they're going to start, and that's going down to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to be finished. And he thinks it's actually going to be finished by somebody in Elliott, but he wasn't sure exactly where. Now, when we were at the boat show in Newport, uh, Newport Offshore got a 54 Muscle Ridge hull back in the spring. 
Well, she's finished and she is now for sale. And it was an impressive job. And it's, it's basically a giant lobster boat. And uh, it was finished off uh, for Eli Dana, who manages uh, the Newport uh, facility there. And uh, so it's simple down below, you know, big, big deck, you know, big cockpit, which is, you know, great for the big for the family. And then we went to Johansson Boatworks, no relation. They're in Rockport on Route 90. Probably anybody that travels the coast would know what's going on. And the common complaint of everybody that I've talked to over the last year is they can't find help. It's a big problem. And they say they have so much work that they have no idea how they're going to get it done. They're now storing 105 boats this year, which is the most they've ever done. Inside, they've got a Genoa 54. That's going to uh, have a new teak deck put down and some core work underneath that repaired. Uh, then they've got a Swan 40 that's in for a teak decks and a Swede 38 or a Sweden 38 that's coming in. They also have seven repowers. Uh, then I talked to uh, Bruce Grindle at uh, H&H Marine in Steuben. And it's unbelievable the work that they've got. They've got a 42 hull and top being laid up right now as a pleasure boat. Then they're going to spray a 42. And that's going to be a hull and deck. It's going to be a commercial boat. And that kid is going out, and they he thought maybe somewhere in the Harpswell area she was going to go get finished. Then he's got a couple of 46s and a 50. And then he thought that there was a smaller boat in there somewhere, but wasn't really sure where it would fit into the schedule. And then they, in the finish shop, they got a 46 lobster boat that's going to Mount Desert Island. And she's going to be powered with a C-18 cat with an 18-inch hauler. Pretty basic boat, 700 gallons of fuel, fish hold, a lobster well, and maybe a gen set, but wasn't sure on that one. And she's a split wheelhouse. Most of the boats today are. Very few boats today come out without that split wheelhouse. These fishermen have figured out that it's a lot nicer riding in the split wheelhouse when it's really, really nasty. And then you got a 42-foot salmon trawler crab boat, and that's going to Half Moon Bay in California. And uh, this is a pretty complicated boat. She's going to have four berths, an enclosed head with galley. Uh, and the galley is up in the pilot house with an L-shaped console for steering station, storage cabinets, settee with a table, which probably makes into a berth. And she's powered with a 750 horsepower John Deere. Then they've got a 40-foot hull going to the mid-coast. And that's getting a 750 John Deere put into it. The other one I stopped in and saw was uh, uh, Jeremy Beal. And Jeremy's got just as much as everybody else. Again, they're, they're just swamped. You know, can't keep up with the workload. And, oh, this one was funny. And I don't know if any of you saw me. I posted this on Facebook. But the guy was in there and he was putting the name on the boat. Well, she's going to Vinyl Haven. Any guesses how he spelt Vinyl? <laughs> he, like, he didn't like, use the a he used the y <laughs> yeah. he says well that's not right and he, and he was kind of like shocked and jeremy goes you're kidding me and i and so it was instantly fixed it wasn't going to take any time to fix that one he just had to run home and, and make an a 
So that's pretty much it where I went into the shops. But like I said, anybody who wants to learn how to build boats or wants something to do this winter, any boat shop in the coast would hire anybody so long as you know how to show up on time and you have a work ethic. Thank you, John. Next, we spoke with a woman with many hats. When wearing the WERU cap, she is host of the short science feature on WERU every Wednesday morning during John Hillman Waters' version of Morning Maine at 7.30. The show is called The Techno-Optimist, and it's produced by Teresa Carey. Teresa also produces a boating podcast, and we wanted to talk with her about that, and it turned into that and a lot more. Well, we start with the podcast. It's called the Morning Muster Podcast, and it's um, we have a couple guests on the show each episode that we do to discuss a certain topic related to sailing or the maritime industry, um, anywhere from navigating in fog and limited visibility to preparing an offshore passage or even cooking on board a boat has been one of our topics. And it's been a lot of fun. Teresa, let's start with the uh, boat talk question. What happened to you when you was young, messed you all up about boats, dear? (laughs) Well, even before my family got a boat, well, my dad got a boat, but even before that, he was telling us stories of Captain Bly and, you know, all, he read all the Patrick O'Brien books and would tell me the stories. And even Moby Dick, he read that to me uh, as a bedtime story when I was a kid. And so anything nautical or of the ocean, he shared with me. And so I think I became obsessed with anything my dad was obsessed with. And then, so that was always sailboats. Uh, strange, but lovely form of child abuse, you know? <laughs> I suppose. But then we eventually got a sailboat and it was like my castle. You know, I was still small enough where I could stand up in the cabin. I was the only one in my family that could stand up in there. So I thought it was like built just for me and my size. And um, and we would sail on Lake Michigan every summer and we would even take trips on this boat. Like I said, it was really small, uh, Ranger 23. And um, as a family of five, we would go on weekend or even week-long trips on this tiny little boat on Lake Michigan. So it was really special. Just a guaranteed happy place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how did you squeeze five people into, uh, was it probably just two bunks, right? Yeah, it had a V-birth. Um and my sisters and I would, all three of us would sleep in there. And then my dad and mom would each sleep on a settee. I don't know how we did it. I mean, I look at the size of the cabin of the Ranger 23, and it's it's a really small 23-foot boat. Huh. I do remember taking a trip with my dad. There was this interesting, There's uh, Lake Michigan is very beautiful. And it is a really unique, special place that, especially for people like us here on the main coast, which is also beautiful and a really special place. I think it's really easy to think that the ocean is where it's at. But as far as lakes go, the Great Lakes are really amazing. And um, they're a thing of their own. But Lake Michigan has a lot of islands. And um, there is this one island that we called it Bird Island. I'm not really sure the real name of it, but we called it Bird Island because 
it had the largest northern nesting herring gull population or something like that. And it in from a distance, it looked like there was a gray cloud sitting on this island. But really, as you got closer, you started to see that that cloud was really just a swarm of herring gulls. They were everywhere. And there were these two bellows left on the island from this rock home that someone had built there. And the whole thing had kind of crumbled and fall apart, fallen apart, except these two bellows. And the, and the legend is that um, the person that lived there went crazy by the gulls and was driven off the island because of the gulls. So we always tried to sail by that and check this place out. It was very interesting to see. Um, and then, of course, the Manitou Islands, which has a lot of uh, legend to it. And um, I remember having quite an adventure with my dad visiting these islands and um, storms that we would weather together. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, hearing my dad bumping around and I was like, what's going on? And he says, I'm sleeping on a roller coaster. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but that's, that was the kind of big adventures we, we would have in, in a really small boat. Teresa, do you recognize the difference between lake waves and ocean waves? Well, yeah, I mean, ocean waves, take a long time to build. So when they come in, they're these big rollers. But in the lake, well, however, the, these are great lakes that I'm talking about. Lake Michigan is a great lake. It's not a lake. Um, it's its own category of a type of body of water. And so Lake Michigan from north to south it has a long fetch. It has a long way that you can build up a big rolling wave. So you do have a lot more chop on the lakes, but you can get some rollers too. I've learned to be scared of lake waves. I've <laughs> never saw seen one in the ocean, seen some big ones that ever bothered me. Boat goes uh, up, the wave goes under, you do it again. But some of these lake waves that are so uh, short and sharp, steep uh, square waves where yes. your propeller comes out of the water, you know, <laughs> bow yes. down and... Uh, uh, <laughs> Scares me badly. Now, Teresa, you are helping make America great again. And uh, the way that so many good Americans have, uh, you know, three or four jobs, you've got more than three or four jobs, as I count. And none of them are uh, uh, less than extremely highly skilled and very specialized. We mentioned the Muster podcast. We got to mention also, you got to tell us about Freethink for a minute. Yes, I'm a, a science journalist. I write about genetics and the environment primarily, but, um, but with a strong interest in how technology is improving the world or at least trying to. <laughs> um, so that's, that's what I cover. And um, I do a little freelance work as well. So, Teresa, you have a science and social media news fellow for the PBS NewsHour, among other things. Yeah. You're a captain of uh, more than 20 years experience and uh, also a filmmaker. Uh, one Simple Quest to film uh, one uh, Blue Ocean Film Festival, um, several other awards, a freelance journalist. And again, these are more than slightly skilled occupations. You are a very uh, apparently talented, busy woman. Yes, too busy. I put it into more more I put it into two categories. I have an um 
Um, I'm a professional mariner. I have a captain's license and I've been doing that for quite some time. And then a couple of years ago, I made a shift into science journalism in all types of media, radio and film and writing. So it's kind of more like you, you say I have all these skills, but really I see it as like two primary fields in my life. And I'm also a mom. <laughs> so where do you uh, captain out of? Uh, Rockland. Rockland? Mm-hmm. What, are you, what are you helming? Well, it's a Norseman 447, and we just hauled it out last weekend. So no more sailing this year. And Teresa, we do sail training, correct? Yes, sail training expeditions. Um, I have been doing much less of this and more like just kind of running the business in the last two years because I have a toddler now. And so I'm just really really excited to be home with him all the time. I think next year I might do some more of our trips, but my husband and I run the business together. And so um, he's been hiring someone to work with him when I haven't been going. Uh, But thankfully being up here in Rockland, Maine, near Outward Bound and all the the schooners, and there's a lot of talented sailors up here and great educators to work with. Hey, were you surprised when John Foss sold American Eagle? I mean, I don't know. We figured he'd die at the wheel. (laughs) So I guess one of his crew members bought the boat. Yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me. There's a love for those boats. And when you get on board one of them, certainly a crew member would be the one to step into that role. Well, and you also feel comfortable with them because you know them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Have you thought about taking the little one with you when you go back? Yes, eventually he will come with us. He's already driving the dinghy. He's only, he's not even three yet. And he, the dinghy is his boat, he says. <laughs> <laughs> and he loves the outboard motor, so. <laughs> back to sail training, Teresa, and a shout out to your man, Ben. Um, watch the video of, of your sail training uh, class out on your boat there, uh, which is called uh, Rosinante, isn't it? Rosinante, yes. Yes, love it. And uh, here's the thing. You teach um, uh, communication skills. You teach basic uh, skills as well as GPS, taking bearings, all kinds of stuff like that, but also communication and uh, the role of the captain, the mm-hmm. thing about morale on a boat. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. I admire that. I've got, uh, you know, three, 400 deliveries in my back pocket. And one thing that has amazed me, I've learned a long time ago, you would assume everybody's on the same boat, especially if you hired them to do a task. But no, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of different people are having their different dreams. And, and in fact, they're not on the same trip that you're on. And mm-hmm. um, I love that you stress communication and everybody's role. Yeah, the reason we do that is because we feel that a lot of problems at sea happen not because of a lack of knowledge or skill, but because of a communication breakdown. And so usually, very often, even if someone is more skilled than another person or is a little rusty in their skills, usually when you pull the whole crew together, you've got all the resources and the knowledge that you need to pull through a lot of the challenges that we face out on the ocean. And so, yeah, very often when there's problems, it's because of a breakdown in communication. So that's why we do a lot of that. And also it's not something you can learn from a book or it's not something you can learn just by observing or things like that, or watching YouTube videos. It really takes a lot of diligent practice. Interestingly, that it's 
uh, we find also that it's not emphasized as much as it should be in a lot of the curriculums, other curriculums out there that we've seen. So we do focus a lot on that. And as you also mentioned, the traditional navigation, you said the basics. I actually think GPS is more basic and navigating with the paper chart and the compass and the rulers is more advanced, more challenging and more thorough because you can find your position by triangulating, but you also get so much more by just in the process of doing it. And you can learn to read the wind and, you know, figure out like more sale tactics just by getting just by getting in it and getting engaged in it so that's why we do that as well when you interview people on the morning muster how do you prepare Ooh, that's a good question um well like you i try to find out a little bit about them um i also try to think about what i would want to hear or what i'd want to talk about and so um, I write sound some ideas there, but a lot of times that those conversations, the morning mustard naturally flows naturally. Um, and usually when I'm interviewing them, I'm taking a lot of notes while they're talking because one question will lead to the next. And so I kind of keep track of how things are going. Um, but to prepare, I kind of, yeah, I just have a, a vision of what I want the finished conversation to cover and then um, do a little research on their background too. And preparing for an interview for like a piece of journalism that I might do for uh, an article or something like that is different because very often I will have a list of questions for that because there's certain things I need to find out. But um, but both of them kind of require just some background research and understanding before launching into a conversation. So what do you do in science? What's your specialty? Yeah. I'm a science journalist, and I cover primarily uh, the climate and genetics with an emphasis on technology. I mean, I cover a lot of things, but those are my two focus areas. Right. Teresa, how often do you do the Morning Monster podcast? Uh, we, try, we aim for twice a month, but I would say we're averaging once a month, so... Um, not as often as I'd like, but during the sailing season, everything else slowed down. And so now that our season is over, like I said, we hauled the boat out last weekend. Everything else is going to be picking up. We are a uh, boat talk is a call in radio program. And for a year and a half or so, we haven't had any telephone calls. And yeah. It's, uh, not the all pandemic. It can be that way. Mm-hmm. How's your feedback loop? I'm assuming it comes over email. Oh, for our ours is not ours is not live. The morning muster is not live, so there's no there's never right. been any call-ins. So I'm asking you, what kind of feedback do you get? Oh, people can leave reviews of our podcasts on Apple on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, um, and they can. We get a lot of emails right from people giving us ideas or like, oh, I really enjoyed this podcast, or um, and then just people we meet in the community, in the sailing community that have listened to the podcast. Good. That means you're doing a good job. Mm -hmm. When we first started doing boat talk, we picked up from uh, Joel White and Maynard Bray did the original ones. And they asked Alan and I one summer, we did a few, it went quite well. And then they said, well, you're going to have to do this all year. And I said, one of the stupidest things ever. I said, good Lord. Well, we speak up in February. And the point being, with the subject matter of, of uh, boats, et cetera, 
it's like books. You'll never run out of good ones. Mm-hmm. That's right. And in February is when people want to hear about it more because they can't get out on the water. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. You have a mm-hmm. uh, running list of uh, uh, people and subjects you're interested in, I assume. No, I mean, yes, but I'm always looking for more ideas. So <laughs> give me your ideas if you have them. Teresa, would you describe your boat a little bit more in detail, especially how you go about uh, having a change of customers all the time? Yeah, we have a Norseman 447 and um, we take five uh, students on sail training expeditions and primarily out of Rockland, although this summer Ben sailed it to Bermuda and then back. And so he had a crew come in and went fly into Bermuda to start there. And I think next year we're going to try to get to Canada, to Newfoundland. This year it was, there was too many restrictions with the coronavirus. Um, Ooh, like to come, like to come. Yeah. I used to live I, in Nova beautiful... Scotia. I know people. Oh yeah. It's amazing up there and it's a great place. You know, it's a, the, the trip getting up there is really beautiful as well. Um uh, and then we do a lot of trips just that start and end in Rockland, Maine, which are my favorite ones, actually, even though it doesn't seem like, you know, it always seems like, oh, going to faraway places is how sailing should be. But Rockland or, you know, the Penobscot Bay and down down East Maine is so beautiful with the rocky coasts. And you turn the corner of one island and you have a whole new scenery and landscape. And it's just really exciting and amazing. And then also, Maine happens to be a really challenging place to sail with the currents and the tides and the rocks, all these things to <laughs> crash into. And then log. the fog, of course, the fog and the lobster pots. Oh, that makes it really pots. challenging. Dodging yeah. those lobster pots. Um, There's not many out there. Lobster no, pots not are, are not uh, really that big of a problem. Toggles. We hate toggles. Yes. But, you know, if there's a lobster pot there, there's going to be a toggle there. (laughs) Uh, Not not everybody fishes them. And, again, we uh, worry all about toggles. Also, love the name of your company, uh, Morse Alpha. Can you explain what Morse Alpha is to a sailor, please? Well, a sailor should know what a Morse Alpha is. But to a non-sailor, the Morse Alpha, it stands for Morse Code. A alpha, um, which is the dot dash sound. And then um, in the ocean, the Morse alpha buoy is the sea buoy. It's a safe water buoy. So if you're out in the ocean and there's nothing out there, and then you just see a hint of land, maybe the first buoy that you'll see that you'll encounter before coming into port would be the Morse alpha. And usually it's kind of exciting to see it in the middle of the night when you know you're going to make landfall the next day. And then you start to see just faintly on the horizon, this short long flash of a white light and that's the dot dash but it's in the light light flash short long and then you wait and you wait a minute you stare at the horizon did i really see it did i see it and then yes it's the more self buoy and you see then the next buoy that you'd encounter after that is when you're starting to go into a harbor or port or something so that's the safe water buoy or the sea buoy we call it is the more self and so it kind of signifies coming home i guess and so that's why we named our business Morris Alpha Expeditions. Nice. 
also re reflects on the radar screen as well. The dot yes. dash. Mm -hmm. Yep, it shows up as a dot dash instead of just the shape. You know, the radar usually just shows the shape of the topography and things, but um, that has a dot dash. Mm -hmm. Teresa, you were speaking of a traditional uh, maritime literature there. Uh, you know, uh, great stories of the sea. How lucky are we to be? Mariners nowadays, where we know where we are all the time, we can see through fog and night. Um, you know, it's, the gig is getting easier all the time in a lot of ways, but it'll never be not challenging or, so to speak, easy. I think we're really lucky that we're sailing in charted waters, you know, rather than being an explorer that was trying to figure their way out in places oh, that have yes. never been charted. Yeah. But um, as far as like being lucky to to come up as a sailor, to be raised as a sailor with all this technology, I'm not so sure that it's luck. I think I think or fortunate, I guess. I think that we lose a lot of skills. You know, there's certainly a, a deficit in skill out there right now. And I think um, I feel pretty lucky that a lot of my training was with Outward Bound, where there was no technology on purpose, even though the technology exists. And so I think a lot of seamanship skills and um, just real true mariner skills are, are the art of it. The craft of it is, is waning sadly with the era that we're in. You made a film called uh, one simple question where you, you uh, retrace the, um, no, that was a, a small boat to record a breaking iceberg. Another one that you did, you uh, become, I left out, National Geographic Explorer. <laughs> That's not light thing right there. I'm reading right now Bob Ballard, um, in, um, Into the Deep, fellow who discovered the Titanic, reading that right now, also a National Geographic fellow. But you did a 3,000-mile Panama to Maine um, trip that tracked the migration of weatherback sea turtles. And the idea was, is the traditional wisdom uh, versus sea turtle conservation, is it working? And what did you find out? Oh, well, that project isn't finished yet, so I can't give it away entirely. But that's going to that's gonna <laughs> uh, be a film. <laughs> um, and... I, I, what I, what I found out in a nutshell was exactly what you were saying is that traditional wisdom is really, really valuable in sea turtle conservation today, even, even alongside with what scientists are doing with tracking the turtles and putting GPS trackers on them and all this, all this amazing research that's going on. There's traditional wisdom that is equally as valuable in the conservation of these, these animals and leatherback sea turtles are pretty amazing creatures. They're, they're huge. Like uh, there's, they can be as big as a Volkswagen and um, they are the ancient mariners of the sea. You know, they've been around in the same form for a long, long time. Being a National Geographic explorer has got to open up a lot of uh, avenues and uh, other uh, more, uh, you know, definite uh, equipment possibilities, perhaps, doesn't it? I don't know about equipment, but certainly opportunities. It's an honor to be a National Geographic Explorer. I feel privileged. And um, and there's a lot of great uh, explorers or 
scientists or storytellers in that community. And so it's nice to be among them and to learn from them. And uh, so I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. Teresa, while we're, uh, uh, again, we Googled you and uh, speaking of your resume, we left a uh, fairly big one out. Speak of your nonprofit called Hello Ocean. Well, Hello Ocean, the, the idea behind Hello Ocean was to combine scientists and artists on a sailboat to do research at sea. And uh, we did a couple of expeditions. Hello Ocean's that project has uh, been, I guess, retired. It's not really active right now. Um, I'd like to do some more of it, but like you said, I've got a lot on my plate. <laughs> so, um, but we had some great expeditions. We went to Belize and we did some sailing there and did a count of the marine mammals out there and the work from that, they, the scientists found a new subspecies of dolphins um, through those expeditions. And then also the work that they did persuaded the local government to instill more protect, protections for the dolphins, I believe. I think I'd have to double, don't quote me on that. I have to read more of my notes because again, this has been a couple of years. Um, but either way, um, some beautiful work came out of it. Some great research that's being published, scientific articles being published, and um, some some art and some film. Mm-hmm. And, of course, sailing in Belize. Contact yes, your website. Yours. My website is teresacarry.com or morsealpha.com. And Morse is spelled M-O-R-S-E, alpha. Mm-hmm. And Teresa has no H. Teresa has no H. And Carrie is C-A-R-E-Y, like Drew Carey, the comedian. (laughs) Her podcast is called Morning Muster. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you for having me. Next, we talk with another world traveler and writer, Captain Lacane Smith. I met Captain Lee at a gathering about a month ago and talked with him about his book, What first piqued my interest was discovering that it was an account of sailing adventures as told by the ship's cat. I asked how that came about. Well, uh, when we were cruising, um, we often wrote Christmas letters from the cat's point of view. Um, The cat was considered integral to the crew. So, um, And then, I don't know, a few years back, I written other books and and I toyed with the idea of it then I don't know that was maybe five six years ago um, and then finally I just got I, I've done a lot of nonfiction myself so I I wanted to do something more for kids and you know something to pass on to people and and I did a video production called far away which was about the South Pacific part of the voyage and I just felt like there was much more adventure to tell and it didn't get told in that. And uh, so I figured we'll have the cat do it and divide into three parts, make a series out of it. Obviously got more than a little bit experience. And the boat talk question is what happened to you when you was young, got you all that experience, messed you up about boats. Not only (laughs) that, this is not your first book. Right. I grew up in Perkins Cove, Southern Maine, in Gunkwit. My father was an old salt, among other things, and uh, he told me sea stories, pirate stories as a little boy, and I actually built a um, brigantine model when I was 10. Um, I guess I created a definite imagination, but I lived 
my bedroom was on the back side of the cove and as a kid I could hear the bellboy ringing and I kept thinking that the sea was calling me and uh, it was kind of a spiritual experience in a way and uh, I was lucky enough to work as a cabin boy on a little boat when I was about that age and then uh, a few years later my father got a little uh, 18 Fort Harrishoff with a keel that was my first boat and and then over the years, went from bigger to bigger to bigger and um, kind of ran the gamut of getting hit by freighters, running aground in Cuba and losing a boat in the, in, down in the Yucatan and did a lot of Caribbean voyages, went further and further. And and then uh, at, at a point later when I was living in Port Townsend, Washington, uh, um, I came into some, enough money to build my own boat, which uh, this one was steel. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of the book Steal Away, but that was coming, came out, wrote that about the same time. Did a lot of research on metal boats after I lost a wooden boat on the reef. And and, uh, and then that was the one we built, it took five years and and uh, with the intent of going around the world. Who's design? John Simpson, Batman BC, British Columbia. Yeah, it's a custom design. We worked together on it and pretty much got the way we wanted it. Um, what were you looking for in the design? Um, something that had a traditional look um, was a, a balance between a performance cruiser and uh, a sturdy, well-handling um, vessel that uh, tracks well and responds well and not too flimsy and sturdy and yet uh, efficient and uh, something that's maneuverable, but... Uh, Self steers very well. And were you happy with it? Catch. Oh, yeah, very much. Yeah, catch rig. I've been a catch person for a few years. I like the sail versatility of catch. Uh, she, she did very well. You left out good looking. Good looking? Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> she's, she's good looking. Round hull steel, too. A lot of people don't realize. They say, oh, is that coal molded or something? Because the hull... We only used about two quarts of filler on the hull to get it fair. Waterline Yachts actually built the hull up in up in uh, Vancouver, ah. and then we had it trucked over. So they must have been pretty experienced in doing steel hulls. Well, they were at the beginning of their 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 endeavors, but they did pick up on doing round hull and welding. And they had definitely good experience in that. Um, but I was one of the first probably five boats they built. Um, and they went on to do many more over the years since. We learn through uh, struggles and mistakes. It sounds like on your uh, voyage with Chowder and your mate Sheila that you didn't struggle all that hard. It seems to me that you travel uh, fairly safely Um a little conservatively and uh, without too much drama, Captain Lee. And it made me wonder one possible reason you chose the device of the cat was that the cat had more drama possibly than the rest of the crew. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that, maybe. But, <laughs> um, yeah, we missed the ultimate storm. We, we, we actually were in the eye of a hurricane uh developing once in the north northwest pacific um 
we had an obligatory gale going around uh, uh, Cape of Good Hope or just before it. Um, we didn't have any real, yeah, we didn't have any real big disasters, but we had a lot of situations we got into. Easter Island, we had a, um, you know, you probably know gales in the South Pacific can send a big wave for many miles. And uh, on a fine day in Easter Island, these swells built up and we were in a little uh, cove and created a big surge coming through, which went over the docks and pushed on the raft up of boats. We were rafted up seven boats in there because of the cozy little cove. And uh, that pulled a lot of lines and that was quite an exciting moment. So there were exciting moments for sure. And again, this is a trilogy that sounds like book two to me. Can't wait to get there. Are they yeah. all written? Yes, yes. Uh, book two is actually in final proofing right now. The images are in final workings and uh, hoping to have that out uh, in November. And book three is uh, 80% edited and that'll be out probably in January. That's the plan anyway. Let's go uh, stay on books for a minute. I'm fascinated. I can't wait to get a hold of it. You've written a maritime history of Brooksville, Maine. Your home, right. hometown now. Right. Yeah, I remember when you came to the Penobscot Marine Museum and gave a talk on it. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a while <laughs> ago. <laughs> um, I, I went to all the maritime museums in the state and Augusta Maritime, uh, Augusta Museum there. They ha- he had piles of stuff in archive, just an amazing collection. He was from Brooksville. and. Alan Ryan, that's right. Oh, Allie. Allie yeah. Ryan, the, cl- uh, the Clamor. Yeah, yeah. And his collection was amazing. But, yeah, I mean, I had to get the gloves on and go in and look at all this material. And and, and, and that was a fun project. And, and I just did it congratulations for the local historical society because one lady asked me if I do after looking at gravestones with these nice and beautiful inscriptions by sea captains who had passed away. I'd always, I always like history. We are we're talking to Captain Lee Smith this evening from Brooksville, Maine, written a, a new book called Sailing South Till the Butter Melts. It's a, a trilogy. We've uh, got book one in our pocket now, and this is a uh, voyage around the world with his mate, Sheila, as told by their sea cat, Chowder. And uh, Chowder stayed on the boat pretty much. Uh, cats don't, uh, you know, go ashore in strange places. Because uh, quarantine and all kinds of things like that. But the cat did leave the boat a couple of times, uh, not on purpose. How many lives did Chowder use up possibly, and is she still with us? <laughs> Happy cat. <laughs> um, she used quite a few. I lost count, but um, um, she passed a while back, and uh, she was 18, and she lived a full life. Uh-uh. Yeah, she, she, she went overboard. Uh, accidentally and on purpose a few times. We had to give her a training drill once, and uh, just in case we were worried she might fall over again. So we gave her a toss in there and then guided her to a net that we hung over the side. But she went for the dinghy first and clawed that and came up and jumped on the boat. So I had to put her in again. And all these people are watching through binoculars from other yachts. (laughs) And uh, 
Yeah, they were, thought they were going to sound the alarm, but they didn't know we were doing it for the goodness of her. Anyway. Neither did Chowder, probably. No, she didn't Didn't appreciate that. Yeah. But in, in, in book two, you'll learn about her doing Polynesian dancing and, and uh, a few other tricks that she came up with. So she did make it ashore in Polynesia. Um, no, she never did. She um, um, did this while on the boat. Huh. So we, we had the music and we got her coerced into uh, making <laughs> some moves with an outfit on. So we'll, she, I understand she is a very vocal cat. Um, yes. When, can you describe the, uh, you had a, a trawling gear with a little jingle bell on it so when a fish got hooked it would jingle the bell and then um, chowder would respond to that right she would give a yell and and uh, she didn't really try to pull the line in catch the fish but she would make sure that i was notified she was knew something was going on there yeah yeah she got real keen on that because she could always look over the stern and kind of keep an eye on it because she knew that's where the fish came from most commonly anyway yeah (laughs) (laughs) what was the most interesting place you stopped at well that's always a common question um i'd have to say kapinga marangi which for short is called kapinga it's just north of the equator in micronesia uh, southwest of ponape 400 people living on this atoll island just polynesian people even wonderful um, not many people realize the Polynesians weren't necessarily in the eastern part of the Pacific Ocean, but there was a migration that reversed itself and went back. So this was kind of north of Papua New Guinea, between there and uh, oh, drew a line from Japan to Papua New Guinea. You'd probably dissect the island. But the people, they knew the modern ways, but if they ran out of fuel or something for their outboard, they would just get their sailing canoe out and go fish with that. They might have an aluminum pot for cooking, but they'd use a leaf for a spoon. Um, they just uh, had an interesting balance, and they're just warm-hearted people. When we came to the point when we were leaving after staying there a month, being the only yacht they'd seen in a while, we put a note, helped someone help us put a note in their language saying that we're going to leave, we'll blow the horn, we're sad to go, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that next morning when we were getting ready to head out, they all came down to the beach to wave goodbye. And they stayed on the beach till we were way over the horizon. It was just, it was amazing. They're, they're just beautiful people and they know how to, they could teach the world a lot about how to live together, 400 people isolated like that. Besides having sailed through some of the hottest places on the planet, which, uh, you know, I'd rather go north, are there any particular pieces of water that were difficult or unpleasant for you? Well, the crossing down in New Zealand from Tonga was a bit cool. I mean, going around in South Africa, of course, had lots of fronts coming through, and that was where we had an obligatory gale. Coming back from New Zealand to Fiji, we timed it luckily just right, because after we got there a few days later, the cyclone developed, and it was called the Queen's Birthday Storm. I don't know if you've heard of it, but that devastated quite a few boats who are a fleet of boats coming up from New Zealand to uh, to uh, Fiji and various parts in the warmer latitudes. We had another crossing called the Crossing from Hell, which was probably the worst one. It would have normally taken 10 days going from uh, the, the banks north of Vanuatu up to Micronesia. 
And, uh, of course, that's across the equator. You're going to get the variables and ITZ and, and all that. But uh, we got a little more than we bargained for and had engine problems and squalls in the middle of the night and um, couldn't start the engine once we were drifting towards a fishing boat. And luckily he moved. On the north, just north of the equator, we got a very calm spell at single sideband radio and we checked in and they were talking about it. It was right the season there. The, the Northwest Pacific has the longest hurricane season, the most of them of any ocean. And uh, as the season was just beginning south of the equator, we were jumping ahead of it. To, and then with the chance of catching a late one in the north, ending their season. And that's what happened. We found out that this cyclone was developing right around us. We were in the eye of a baby one as it started up. And the backside finally came through. We had 50, 60 knots, but nothing like what Japan got a week later when they had 200 knot winds. That, we, 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 it was touching, <laughs> touchy, touchy moments there, but we, we did all right. We even got into Kosrai and another late cyclone passed then and just enough, far away enough that there was only 70 knot winds coming off the hills down into the town and where we were anchored, but we ended up dragging anchor towards where a church was, and they were at that time practicing uh, Christmas carols. <laughs> so here we are trying to hang on and reset a third anchor out, the only few times we ever did, and while well, this Christmas carols beaming out of the church. Different events happen in different times. In Malacca Straits, um, we heard stories and we didn't know what to think, but one day a boat was coming right at us real fast, and we thought, oh my God, this could be it. And uh, as soon as they got real close, the boat turned quickly, and they all waved. And we're like, what the? Hmm. Later, we come to find out that if a fishing boat is out fishing and they don't um, catch any fish, they think there's a bad spirit on board. So they'll find another boat, go fast towards them, and turn quickly so that spirit will fall off on the other boat. <laughs> and uh, so we, we came out all right in that end. You didn't we pick fishing. up any we bad were, spirits. We weren't fishing, so it didn't <laughs> Captain, as a uh, delivery sailor, we're always worried about fuel. Uh, how much do we have? Um, is it, we assume it's always good, but we worry about the tanks. We worry about shaking the boat up, and we worry about fuel filters. Now, I know you're pretty conservative about fuel. Uh, traveling all those strange places, any issues? Can you always find it? Um, not always, but we had 200 gallon tanks of fuel capacity. So whenever uh, we, we tried to stretch things when we knew there were places where it was going to be touch and go, I think, um, Indian ocean, we had to load up some jugs from a place and carry them back to the dinghy and onto the boat. But pretty much outside of that, we, we, we hit it pretty good and we, have different tanks so we can say, okay, tank one's low, tank two's low, whatever, or empty. Then we know we're down to certain, because you can keep track of how much you're using and try to save it for when you really need it. Our main problem was they had an air leak in the, in, uh, in the line, which kept being a pain. Had to rebleed the engine every so often at a Perkins 236 engine. And uh, one time we were coming into Cosfry and just couldn't get the engine running. So we, we figured we'd get the anchor ready, but sail through the, the cut and if we could get through where the reefs were before the wind dropped then we'd be okay and so it turned out we got a hold of another boat with their dinghy and they 
actually towed us for about a quarter of a mile. And then the wind came up again on the other side of a hill. So we, we looked out there. But mostly bad water was the only thing. But we collected rainwater with the tarps, mm. and that was 80% of our collection of water. Um, only once in Mexico did we get water, which was from a big truck that they just went around the corner and opened a tap and filled up water and called it good water. <laughs> it was We got Montezuma's revenge there. But you can collect with a nice setup with the tarp, awning, and um, funnel going into your water tanks. You can collect water from, a, I think, one downpour and a heavy downpour and a thunderstorm. We filled up the whole tanks in about an hour or something or less. She's asking in the background if you mentioned her. <laughs> she wants to be mentioned. <laughs> Big shout out. Good to have a good mate. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And she she didn't sail that much when we met, but she learned pretty fast. And she became a ham oper- ham radio operator. And uh, we, we talked it down to South um, um, McGurdy Station down in the... Uh, Antarctica and you know naval ships and things is amazing what you can talk to on ham radio. I don't know if they still use them today, but back then it was it was still going a good thing because they they have all there's certain times where they people can't communicate with uh, people in Antarctica and there was this lady in I don't know if we got Montana or somewhere who we as a go between. Oh, I want to talk to my husband down there, and so we'd be out. At, relay messages back and forth between her and south and our antarctica well speaking of mates and crew i'm a dog person and uh years ago we did a show on boat talk about dogs on boats Hmm. where do they go things like that and uh you would have to say that cats are i I live with one now in a house i'm in uh i take care of my friends harry black pussycat and i read the book to her quite a bit she likes to lay on my chest. Uh, I don't know quite what she made of it. I ask her. She knows it's a different book sometimes. I ain't sure. She likes to read. But cats are um, well-maintenance, and that's good on a boat. Yeah. Yeah, dogs, they got to – I think dogs are much harder. They want to run, get on the beach, and, of course, a lot of places. I mean, remote islands that are deserted, you can do whatever. But um, anywhere else, you got to be careful taking animals – and and ashore, which isn't necessarily it's a it's not a thing that's a thing that's frowned upon by officials. Um, New Zealand actually, we had a cat patrol. Uh, we called it. Uh, officer had to come. They they're concerned about rabies and things there. And uh, it turned out there was about eight cat boats that had boats that had cats. We had to fly a little green flag, and um, we all decided <laughs> to tie up together in a group and then they have an inspector who would come by every other day and make sure that your cat was there on the boat. <laughs> and, and they, um, Sheila would even save time and we all had to pay for this collectively. So to save money, we try to be as efficient as possible. And Sheila would pull the, when he heard the inspector come, she'd pull the cat out, hoist him up, wave his paw. He's here. He's here. And then put him back down. The inspector wouldn't go on. He was nice. Or she actually nice enough to go but they did pull a trick one fam, one couple on a boat said we got to leave but we can't have any we don't have anybody to watch our cat but he sits in the same place down below on the boat and you look through the porthole and you'll see him he's always there and so the inspector did one day he came there was a cat okay and then the next day next time still there 
But the third time he looked at him a little bit and said, hmm, cat hasn't moved an inch. She's still in the same position. <laughs> it turned out it was a stuffed cat. It was fake. <laughs> and it got in the newspapers. He was humiliated. And after a while, he, he learned to laugh about it. But uh, a little trick on him. Yeah. Could have been catatonic. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Real catastrophe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Captain Lee, how can people get a hold of uh, you and or this lovely book? The, uh, well, the book is at Sherman's and all the local books as you can get it at. Blue Hill Books has it. Uh, Ellsworth uh, Union River store there. Um, Amazon, all those outlets. Any You can get the ebook. You can go to my website, get it there. Or if you see me driving down the road, I'll have them always with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and book two hopefully will be out soon. Um, um, it's not a get rich thing by any means. Uh, I kind of do it for, I, I, it's something that's true to my heart and, um, <clears throat> being able to tell stories that give inspiration and expand your imagination and give people a sense of what the world is like out there. A lot of people, especially in this country, don't really know about the rest of the world. And when you come directly in contact with the people, especially even in the third world, people just, um, they just have a real sense of being about them and how to live naturally with the, with the elements. And, and uh, um, I mean, there's problems everywhere, but on a relative scale, we always tend to go to the small villages and stay away from the cities because it seems in the villages that people, they, they keep their traditions and their way of life intact and learn how to, um, how to get along better. Um, there's some amazing traditions where if you are in a village and you do something wrong to some neighbor, that they will bring you out and expose you to everybody. So you're humiliated to the point where you never think of doing that again, rather than they don't have police, you know, a lot of those places, they handle it all themselves. And there's certain ways of life that have a lot of wisdom in them and, and, uh, um, could, could be a benefit to, uh, uh, many people in the modern world. That's Lacane Smith, and the book is called Sailing South Till the Butter Melts. Thank you, Captain Lee, and that will drop the sails on another boat talk. Stay safe. I survived the sails, sir. I survived the fish, the fish, and take some home to lie, sir. 